Well, this morning we will be in Matthew chapter 18, uh, and we'll start with verse 21. This is the parable of the unforgiving debtor. Uh, If you've been with us over the last three weeks or bits and parts of the last three weeks, you know that we're talking about forgiveness. And so today is uh, perhaps the, uh, um, maybe the main parable or the main teaching from Jesus on forgiveness. And so it would be my privilege to read for you out of Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving debtor. Then Peter came to him and asked the famous question on forgiveness, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Shall I do it seven times? Of course, seven in their culture is a number for completeness, all right? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Or maybe your translation reads 77 times. It's a, uh, it's a matter of how the, the uh, verb tense ends there in Greek on how it's translated, whether it's translated 77 times or 70 times seven. But it's really kind of irregardless, honestly. It doesn't really matter because it's the figure of speech. What Jesus is saying is, oh, what, is, what, what number is completeness? We'll take that and multiply it by completeness. Completeness multiplied by completeness. You are to always and forever forgive someone. You can think of it like this, always and forever. So he tells him a story to contextualize how often you should forgive someone. Well, you should forgive someone always and forever. And so then he tells a story to contextualize it. You're lucky this morning. Obviously, you've come to hear a play-by-play commentary on Scripture. (laughs) Here is, I'll try to keep the commentary to a minimum here. But Therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. I should actually, this this version is late. There's been uh, quite a bit of price of inflation. The number here should be an insurmountable number. It should be a number so large that it's hard for us to imagine. A million dollars, some of us can imagine. A million dollars, some of you in your lifetime will have earned that much. Some of you in this room have already earned over millions of dollars. So it's a very, I know it's crazy. It's crazy. I'm looking at the seminary students and they're like, ah, I know. I haven't earned a million bucks. But some people in the room have been blessed. They've been blessed. They've earned a million dollars. Jesus is not talking in numbers that we can, that numbers that we can imagine. So I want to offer a new number. What he says in the Greek is so bizarre that it would be like saying that one of his debtors was brought in who owed a trillion dollars, sorry, a hundred trillion dollars. The reason I use such a bizarre number like a hundred trillion, because the number that Jesus used is greater, greater than three of the surrounding country's national debt at the time. It's large. So it would be even larger than our own national debt. Our national debt sits at what? Trinity, Trinity, it's a hard word for me. 20 trillion. I have to really focus. I have trouble with my arms. Uh, So I say 100 trillion dollars. 
something that's even beyond our own national debt, way beyond our own national debt. Because the numbers that Jesus used is larger even than the surrounding country's national debt. He uses a number that's, that's bizarre. Uh, it, it's incredible. I'll, I said I wasn't going to do commentary. <laughs> obviously, he couldn't pay it. So his master, or obviously, it'd be like me saying, you owe me $100 trillion. You would laugh at me. This guy can't, there's no way this guy can pay it. So his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay his debt. But the man, of course, at the news of this, fell down before his master, just like you would, and begged him, please, be patient with me, and I will pay it all. (laughs) Yeah, right. $100 trillion? Yeah, right. There was no way this guy could ever pay this in his lifetime. He did no one worked a job that would, there's, there was no job in existence that would actually ever earn the amount of money that Jesus used. There's, it's impossible. What's happening here is Jesus is painting and re- he's using really, really extreme rhetoric here to paint a picture that it's impossible. That the debt that this guy owes is literally, it's impossible. It's beyond any economic imagination for that day. So he falls down on his face and says, I'll pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him because he knew that it was impossible. And he released him. Actually, he forgave him of his debt. The hundred trillion dollars was no more. It was gone. But when the man left the king... He found a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. Hundred trillion, few thousand. Again, Jesus is using extreme rhetoric, extreme language here. He's doing it on purpose. So the man who'd been forgiven the great debt then grabs the one who owed a little, and he grabs him by the throat and demands instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But the one who'd been forgiven much would not wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servants just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt, which in this case would be for the rest of his life. That's what my heavenly Father, Jesus says, will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Outside the commentary, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The million dollar question, when can I draw a line on forgiveness? Maybe you're asking that right now, in this moment. When has someone wronged you to the point that you can stop forgiving them? Where is the line at 
When someone has crossed it repeatedly too many times, or maybe just once, but their sin was so great that to, to do it once was done. It's the age-old question that I think oh, we probably all are in the process of rationalizing in our own pain, in our own hurt. When is enough enough? When can we stop forgiving? Now, this question is not asked in a personal manner. It's asked in a communal manner. It's asked about those who gather in the Lordship of Christ. It's asked about the church. When should the church stop forgiving someone? When should the church draw a line and say, okay, you've crossed it seven times? And Jesus says, oh, no, not seven times. But always and forever, the church always and forever should forgive any of those that have anything against them. But that's not enough for human minds because what we really want to know, what we're really asking is when can we get vengeance? When can we get what's due that other person that wronged us? Did anyone stay up too late watching college football last night? Okay, me and Mike. I think that was it, right? Is it just me and Mike? Anyone else? Anyone else specifically watch the ending of the Ohio State-Oklahoma football game? Oh, okay, Rex, you saw that. Mike saw it. Anyone else? Okay. What did you see, Mike? What happened at the very end of the game? Ah, you fell asleep. You're weak. You're a weak man, Mike. Rex, did you happen to see the end of the game? Ooh, okay. You probably have some Oklahoma fans in your... In your you're probably an Oklahoma fan. Oh, go Sooners! Man, they, they beat Ohio State last night. They beat Ohio State at Ohio State. There was probably close to 100,000 people at this game. Yeah, Mike, you ready? Okay. Yeah, the quarterback from Oklahoma, Baker Mayfield, has been sitting on embarrassment for a year. A year ago... Ohio State comes into Norman, Oklahoma. That's the name of the town, right? It comes into Norman, Oklahoma, and Ohio State beats Oklahoma, embarrasses them on national television, and then they do... I, any Ohio State fans here? Okay, good. Uh, they do that ridiculously stupid chant, that one that says, uh, what did they go? Someone goes, oh. And the other side goes, hi-oh, or something like that. Some. O-H. Oh, thank you. Are you an Ohio State fan? Okay, good. You're from Ohio, though. They say O-H, and the other side says I-O. Okay, that's their chant. And the football team gathered around uh, uh, Oklahoma's football field, and they did the Ohio State chair in Norman and embarrassed Oklahoma and embarrassed the quarterback, Baker Mayfield, and they've been sitting on vengeance for a year. Well, last night... Oklahoma beats Ohio State in Columbus, Ohio, uh, around now on national television. Probably close to a hundred thousand people were there, and Ohio State gets embarrassed, get beat by two or three touchdowns. And at the end of the game, the quarterback who'd been sitting on embarrassment for a year grabs the Oklahoma flag, and you can see. In his eyes, I could see it, I recognize this. He got all hyped up on emotion and stopped thinking rationally. And he, he takes the flag, I've been there a time or two, takes, <laughs> takes the flag and runs to the center of the field and waves it over the Ohio emblem and then plants the flag right in the center. <sighs> that you, okay, go YouTube this, please. 
the irony here is all of the Ohio State fans have left. John Courtney's on it right now. I can see all the Ohio State, all the Ohio State fans had left. The players were off the field. The only people left to defend uh, against the Oklahoma football team was the Ohio State marching band. <laughs> they were all standing there with their little trumpets as, as Mayfield planted it. And uh, 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 that got me, made me think, about what's happening here. Baker Mayfield, all year long, was wanting to know when he had a chance for vengeance. And there's something inside me. There was something inside you, the way that you laughed, the way that you responded to that story, that makes you go, ooh, but then uh, I know what's back, but ooh, but when can I do that? (laughs) When can I take my flag of pride, whatever it may be, and plant it right where I've been hurt? And they said, no, you cannot hurt me. I will win the day. (laughs) You cannot shatter my pride. I'm stronger than this. You know, whatever situation it may be, Baker Mayfield just represents what probably most of us wish that we could do at some point. When will we get our chance at vengeance? So Jesus, in response to this, when do we get our chance to prove to people that we're more than just being trampled over, we're more than being wronged, or more than the sum of our victimizations. When do we get a chance to stand up strong and to take back our pride, you know? So Jesus, in response to this question, tells the most ridiculous story, one that doesn't even have calculations that any commentators can really agree on because the calculations are so large and so unfathomable that when he actually spoke this, it would have just melted their brains to hear the words that he was using. It was so extreme. But the point of Jesus' lesson, I feel like, is found right at the end of it. When the king is now faced again with a servant who had forgiven a lot, and the servant, the servant didn't really know. The servant was still out trying to collect debt to pay back what he owed. It's almost like the servant was living in such a way that the servant really didn't know how much he had been forgiven. It's like the servant was still on a journey to satisfy the servant's own pride. The servant was going to make right what deserved to be made right. And the servant was going to go show the king that he could pay back his debt, that he could stand on his own two feet, that wherever he lived, he didn't live in cheap grace, not where he lived. He lived by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps town, wherever that is. That's where he lived. He came from school of hard knocks. He would make his own way. And because he was so hell-bent, that's irony, because he was so hell-bent on proving his own value, what his own intrinsic worth was, he'd forgotten how much he had been forgiven. And so he leaves the king's presence, he goes out and he demands from others that they pay back what they owe him so he can prove himself to the king. So, Bonnie, isn't that weird? He'd been forgiven like trillions of dollars. But he still felt like he had to prove his worth to his king. 
And so here he goes choking people out, demanding, not living a life of mercy because he had no, he had, this is the point of the story, he had no understanding of what it was to be a child of mercy. He had no understanding of what it was to live in the freedom of grace. He was still being choked by the power of vengeance, by this enemy trap that tells us we'll feel good when we're able to plant our flag right where we've been hurt. That that's where true life is found when, we, when the other gets what's coming to them. The servant had no understanding of the incredible freedom that comes with grace. He was still living in pride. And so the king says, what are you doing? Have you not Do you not know how much mercy I have shown you? And yet you can't even show a little bit of mercy to someone who owes you very little? And Jesus then, commentating on the story, says this is the life that's coming to each person that cannot forgive their brothers or their sisters from their heart. I have a feeling, Ron, that Jesus' story really isn't about forgiveness. This would probably fall, this, not probably, it does fly in the face of most commentators I read. So I'm probably standing on heretical ground here. <laughs> I looked this week for assurance that I wasn't standing on heretical ground. Now I'm just trusting the Spirit, okay? But to me, it wouldn't be a surprise if the story comes out to not really be be about forgiveness at all. But it comes out to be about the matter of the heart. The matter of the heart is something that Matthew talks about frequently, 19 times. In Matthew's text, we hear about the heart. Some of these are very familiar passages to you. Do you know the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? Jesus says it. Jesus says it in Matthew 22, verse 37. He says, these are the greatest commandments. And he lists the first one. Love the Lord your God with all your... Hmm, okay. I have a feeling that this story in this parable is about the matter of the heart. A central beatitude located right in the middle of them all is in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in... There's this amazing scripture about wisdom that Jesus shares with his disciples in Matthew 6, 21. He says, you see where your heart is, there also will be your... Hmm. And Jesus even credits our speech, the very words that we use as a source that comes from our heart, as a heart being the source of our words. He says, out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. This is Matthew 12, 34. And then in the captivating story, I think we all know, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in Matthew 15. The Pharisees are arguing about what's clean to eat. And Jesus says, it's not what you eat that defiles you. What is it? It's what comes from your heart. It's, it's not what you put in your body. It's what comes out. Okay. Then back to Matthew 23. 
he has a cup. And he's back to rebuking the Pharisees again, which is basically just like Jesus talking to me. And he has this cup, and it's beautiful on the outside, but it's dirty, nasty on the inside. He says, what good is this cup if it's clean on the outside, but it's dirty on the inside? Would you drink from it? No, because it doesn't matter what the appearance of a cup is. It matters what the inside is like. If the inside of a cup is clean, you would drink from it. If the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside is dirty, you wouldn't drink from it. And so Jesus goes on to compare our lives to that of a cup. It's not what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside. So 19 times, Jesus is undergirding for us that discipleship is about the heart. And so he gets to this parable, a parable where the servant can't understand his forgiveness beside his master, that in light of his master, all he can see is that he owes something, that he's indebted, that he's not free from his own power and so that in his pride he has to provide and prove to himself that he himself and of himself is good. That he cannot own his identity as being a child of mercy and grace. His heart is hardened to mercy and to grace. His heart cannot receive what is freely given. Because his heart is too bound up on vengeance. Mm. Easy now. As I was preparing for this message, I was awoken in the middle of the night. Not really. It was actually right before I woke up. It felt like in the middle of the night. And I don't know if this will connect or not. And I know you're still waiting to hear the message on forgiveness. I, in the Spirit's help, it will come. But I was awoken at the very tail end of my sleep. And it was a word that, that didn't come from me. It's not anything that I've been studying. It's a word that comes from elsewhere. It comes from my sleep. I don't know if that's holy or not. But it comes from elsewhere nonetheless. And I woke up thinking about the difference between escaping and a sanctuary. The difference between being on the run from something and being somewhere that's safe. And just kind of in a flush, a flood of thoughts that I hadn't been thinking about this at all, it just kind of came to me. That in terms of forgiveness, escaping may be necessary. That it It may be that some of you are in a situation right now where you are in a situation where you need to run and to flee. If you're being abused or if you've been abused, that's a good situation to run away from. I don't think Jesus was intending 70 times 7 to be a place of passive aggression where you allow yourself to be abused 70 times 7 forever and always. I think that there's a place to run away, that to flee from a place of abuse I think even to go back to last week, if you weren't here last week, we talked about these necessary steps uh, in in our process of forgiveness, and that would be to name it, to hold it accountable, to name that God doesn't tolerate it. I think as we're escaping situations of hurt and pain and wrong, where we've been wronged by something and it's necessary for us to get away from that, that it's okay to run and to escape. 
I think we run and escape with the honesty of naming that thing that's been wronged, of holding it accountable to the Scripture story, to not tolerate it in the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, so I don't want to be confused, Cindy. I don't, want, I don't want you to confuse me as saying that we shouldn't run away at all. But that word that came to me, Deb, was, was not about escaping. In fact, maybe we use escaping as a reason for forgiveness too often, where we turn our back to something and we run away from it because it's evil or wrong. And we spend the rest of our life running away from that. Or perhaps we spend the rest of the church's mission building blockades against that, stating always and forever what the church is against, escaping and running away from that which has been wronged. Not saying that the wrong isn't legitimate, but saying that there's a great difference between the sanctuary that the Lord offers us and the path of escaping and running away from a problem. You see, where there is sanctuary, there is peace. And where there is peace in the sanctuary is mostly because there, there is surrender. Where you can let down. So let's say that you're a refugee. You're a refugee from the Florida Keys. And you're looking for some place. I don't know, where are they going? Tennessee? Kentucky? Some are here. Your parents are here. Okay, what's your mom's name? Debbie? Okay, Debbie's a refugee from Orlando, Florida. And she's been offered a sanctuary here in the Miller's home. So when I say refugee, I don't mean the ones you're thinking of. I mean real people. And so, I can explain that later. (laughs) We tend to think about those people that we only see on TV. We objectify them and then we make a stance and statement if we're for them or against them. I'm not talking about those that we're for or against. I'm talking about real human flesh. People we see, we know her name is Debbie. Debbie is here from Orlando, and she's in a place of peace and refuge in the Miller's home. It's a place where she can relax. Escaping was necessary. (laughs) It gets messy when you use real-life examples, doesn't it? Escaping was necessary, but a place of refuge and peace is a place where you can relax, where you can surrender, where you can breathe where you can be. You see, Jesus in himself offers sanctuary. Not just a place to escape the problem, but a place to surrender, a place to be, a place to rest. He says, he says take on my burden and take on my yoke. It is easy and it is light. In Jesus is rest. In Jesus is peace. In him is the very sanctuary of all of our escaping and running. And so what the Lord offers us, friends, is something far greater than a building. He offers that he would take up residence in the very center of our life, from the very seed of our thoughts. See, back in that day, the heart was the motor of all things bodily. The heart is what made you walk. And the heart is what, it was biologically super wrong. But in the day that Jesus was speaking, that's what they thought. Jesus was wrong about something. So they thought that the heart is what made you walk. The heart is what made you talk. 
The heart is what processed the thoughts for your brain. The heart gave you verbiage to speak. The heart is what made your motor skills go. The heart is what made you feel. The heart was the very seat of all human activity. And so the sanctuary that God offers to us is not just a sanctuary of physical presence, so that's important. But God offers residence right where it matters most in the very center and seat of the human being into the heart. Which is why I think it is probably the central, one of the central points of the Gospel of Matthew, for discipleship at least. That if you want to know forgiveness, then you must know forgiveness of the heart. That if you want to live a life that reflects forgiveness, you must have a life whose heart is surrendered in the sanctuary of mercy and grace offered freely to you. You must know who you are. For if you're like the servant and you have a heart that cannot receive the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, then you'll go on being like Baker Mayfield, planting your flag in places and people that have wronged you, waiting for your vengeance and waiting for your right. But if your heart can be surrendered to the very one that is freely offered to you, then you may live a life where you are freely offered to others. I think what God wants for us and for you and for me for New Beginnings Church is not to be a people that's well stamina from running, but a people that know how to live from the heart. A people that know not that the outside of the cup matters, but that the inside of the cup matters. And to live a life where the heart is fully surrendered all things to Christ so that our very living and being, the seat of every thought comes from a sanctified heart of God. And where every mouth, where every word spoken out of our mouth is spoken out of a sanctuary heart that is at peace with Christ. Could you imagine? Could you imagine what your relationship would be like with your estranged other, whoever it may be? If you approach them, not as one running away from their wrong, but as a sanctuary where they could go in you and rest. Jesus has every reason to run away from us, but he comes to us with a heart pure of peace and mercy, offering all of himself to us so that we can rest in him. Could you imagine, friends, if you accepted Jesus on his offer to live in his heart of peace and mercy, where your heart becomes one of peace and mercy, where you could be offered to the other, whether it's your aunt, whether it's your uncle, maybe it's your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your wife, your husband, your, your friend, your neighbor, your boss, the, the tax man. I don't know who's wronged you, probably the tax man. I don't know who's wronged you but someone has wronged you, could you imagine what life would be like 
if instead of running away, you became a sanctuary. Could you imagine what would happen to those friends from Florida that are fleeing for their life if people's homes were opened up to them as a place of peace, as a place of sanctuary? Could you imagine if we didn't just do that for people from our own country, but we did that for anyone and everyone, if we became a sanctuary for all of a place of peace and mercy? Could you imagine the lives of sanctification we would live if our hearts were pure as God's? Man, I get excited this morning, and I'm going to end it here. Our kids didn't come to hear me preach. They came to receive the Eucharist, the place of peace and mercy. Bonnie, I get excited. Because I think that I'm stumbling upon the heart of the whole gospel. It's that God just doesn't want to teach us a characteristic of the Christian life like forgiveness. He wants the very center of our life so that all things reflect Him. That was really good. You see, like, see, I will say it again. Like, thank you. I will. Like, if I can remember it. That God doesn't want to just teach us about certain characteristics of the Christian life, like forgiveness. But what the Lord really wants is to take center place, the very seat of all thoughts, of all things. That's why in the Bible it's called the heart. But I think what really God wants is every bit of us, all of us, so that all things can reflect Him. And if you want to know about forgiveness, how do I forgive? How many times should I forgive? Well, you should give all of your heart to Jesus and then ask him that question. Because the answer will be 70 times 7. It will be all the time, and you cannot do that on your own. And you're not able to do that on your own, but with a heart fully surrendered to Christ, you can turn to your estranged other, the one who has hurt you beyond imagination. And offer yourself a sanctuary. Thanks be to God.